If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. It's going to be a great passage for us to kick off a new series, starting a new work today called David. We're going to go through the major episodes of David's life, from just the ruddy, handsome boy all the way to his deathbed. David's life story is actually the longest biography in your Bible. It spans two books, First and Second Samuel. By the way, that originally was one book at one point in time, and it was called the Book of Kingdom originally, which I think is much cooler. I vote that we bring that title back. Um, but besides Jesus and Paul, I think David might be the biggest character in your Bible, right? He's definitely one of the most controversial people in your Bible. He had multiple wives. We'll have to talk about that, right? Killed a lot of people in battle. We'll have to talk about that as well. A lot of people kind of push away from David because of some of his writings in the Psalms. He comes across kind of mopey. And so it's kind of a turnoff for people. He's a little bit of a, of a controversial third rail type of figure in our Bible. And the way that the Western church has largely taught us to read about David is that he is the hero of his own history. But we're not meant to read it that way. We're meant to understand the story quite differently than that. David is actually supporting cast of his own story. He's a supporting cast. Also, it's going to be important as we walk through these mega episodes of David's life to understand that his story simply cannot be an inspiration for you and me to be more oppressive or to achieve bigger goals or to challenge our fears or to defeat our giants. This cannot be a manual on how to be just like David. So if it can't be about those things, then why go through it, right? Why go through the major episodes of his life? There's going to be a few key reasons for that. And I think it's important that you know that when we choose a book or two of the Bible to move through as a church, there's a reason that we pick the books that we do. There's a reason that we go through the series that we do. We do kind of take the temperature of the church and where the wind's blowing and see what God would be bringing to us in this season. And I think this will be helpful for us as we move through the summer. David's life helps us understand the rest of Scripture, first of all. If you want to know more about your Bible, you want to learn more about the gospel, who Jesus is, the unfolding history of the church, how we're supposed to walk in light of all of that today, you're going to want to know David well. David unlocks a wealth of scripture for us. And for instance, in David's life, you're going to see the foreshadowing of Jesus, and you're going to see it everywhere. It's all throughout these books. David is one of the biggest prefigures of Christ that we have, and that's not by a mistake. We're, we're meant to be uh, just not, you know, we're, we're not meant to just see that, we're meant to be changed by it whenever we read these stories. It's not just for information. It's not narrative for narrative's sake. Also, David's life paints a nuanced picture, but a realistic one of what a hero and a villain looks like. This is also important, I think, in this age, where everyone either has a black hat on or a white hat on. We're pretty polarized people to begin with, but the last few years, it feels like to me, Anecdotally, maybe you as well, that we become more polarized and a lot less self-aware. So it's important to know that outside of God's sovereign influence of David, David's no better than Saul. Outside of God's sovereign influence on David, he is just Saul chapter 2. David had no superpowers, friends, but he had a big basket of failures and faults and issues. I think it's important because the prevailing thought line that we carry into something like this and what I grew up with is that David was just different than other men. So God chose him. 
David was so different than everyone else with two legs walking around that God just couldn't help but to choose him. Not exactly. Not exactly at all how that went down. What I mean is, is it's not as if God was scanning the horizon to find a guy that was better than the last guy, unable to find somebody until he just kind of saw David walking along and thought, that's him, that's the guy, that's the guy, David, that's who I've been looking for, as if it was some sort of a surprise. I think another common misunderstanding we carry into looking at David's life is that Saul, who is the king that comes before David, if you're new to the Bible, Saul is all bad, and David is all good. That's also not true. Saul is not all bad, at least at, at first. And David is not all good, which we will see. We're not going to hit delete on those episodes of his life. We're going to go deep into them. But David's relationship with God is fundamentally sound, which means he knows God, confesses to God, repents to God. He is strengthened by God, knows himself to be a sinner, relies upon God's grace. These are true things about his life as well. Another reason we're going to go through this as a church is it teaches us to hope in God rather than human government. That's one thing we're going to pick up. You see, the backdrop to what we're going to read today is Israel has been looking for a king, and they wanted a king because all the other nations had a king, right? What this means is they were rejecting God as the king. See, God wanted things to be a little bit different with his nation, where God was the king, and then he spoke through prophets and judges. And what the people decided is, that's not good enough for us. We want to be like every single other nation. So we reject God as king. We want a flesh and blood king. And you will actually, if you go back and read, you'll see that God kind of lets them know, hey, you think you know what you're asking for, you don't. Miseries compound with kings, as you're going to find out. This is also important for us. These people wanted a strong king to establish and save them, and I realize elections are coming. Elections are coming. We still look for this, don't we? I mean, this happens every single election cycle, where I find us depending on government to save us. A person, a representative, a judge. And listen, the older I get, the more political I get the more I'm tempted to, to say in my heart or even say out loud, man, if we could just get the right people in the right places at the right time, then this nation will be a different nation. And I think that's somewhat true, but even good politicians make bad saviors. Even great representatives and judges and kings and presidents make horrible saviors for us. Our hope cannot be centered on flesh and blood. That's another thing that this will teach us. So what I'd like to do is just jump in to 1 Samuel 16. Now, I get it, that's 16 chapters into the book of 1 Samuel, but this is the first time that David is mentioned by name. There's a lot that goes on before this. And listen, we can't hit every single verse of 1 and 2 Samuel. We'd be in it for years. None of you would come back. I'd be preaching to my wife every week. So what we're going to do is focus on the major episodes and the major episodes only. But I encourage you to read the first 15 chapters whenever you get a chance. It's a fantastic story. It's a brilliant, fantastic story of what God does. But 1 Samuel 16, I'm going to jump into verse 1. We're going to read and pause, and then we're going to read and pause. The Lord says this. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. 
And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. All right, let's pause just for a moment. There's a lot there. The opening mood, of course, is pretty dark. It has a dark and rough, heavy mood to it. Saul has just been rejected by God as the king, and he'd been reigning for about 40 years. Just to put that in context, if Ronald Reagan was still the president of the United States, that's how long it would be. (laughs) It's a long time. That's a long reign, and it's coming to a close, and Samuel's sad. But why is he sad? He's sad because he didn't want Saul to fail. He didn't want any of this to happen. He doesn't want the people of Israel to be falling into disrepair and being in rebellion because the leaders were in rebellion. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want to see God's enemies triumphing. He doesn't want to see any of this. His sadness is over the state of God's people. Listen, in my research, just in my reading on this, it struck me how little I mourn the state of the nation and the church. I think it's just become so normal for me to hear about all the sinful ideologies that chisel into our country and swallow up the church. I just become a little bit numb to it. It's just another day. And the thing is, is a lack of shock. That's the first step towards apathy. And I think we've all felt that a little bit. I mean, isn't it interesting how the revival in Asbury has already faded to a, uh, oh, whatever happened to that anyway? Have you caught yourself wondering that? It just came and it went. Listen, I'm still very, very, very hungry to see revival in Knoxville. Me and Matt were out there praying this morning in the hallway just for that very thing. Hungry, hungry to the point that if, not, if, if Knoxville felt God's revival in every church but, but Legacy Church, I'm still jazzed about it. I'm hungry for this city to feel the wind of God sweep across it, wake the church up, and awaken the city. Very hungry for this, whether we have a role in it or not. But I know revival is provoked by prayer from a place of brokenness over where things are at. Here Samuel has a lot to teach us. He teaches me anyway. I'm learning a lot from him. But his sadness was deep enough for God to tell him to stop. Fill up his flask. That's what a horn is. Fill up his flask with oil and move forward. Why? Because a new king is about to be selected. And God already knew who it was going to be. Now here's the problem. A couple problems really. First problem is the setting. Everybody kind of knew, or at least everyone in Bethlehem is going to know, that Samuel is a bit of a kingmaker, right? But also, Samuel and Saul had a pretty bitter falling out with each other. Um, they hadn't seen each other and since their last interaction, and it was not a good one. Also troubling is Samuel, the last time he showed up in public, he hacked a guy to death with a sword. <laughs> king Agag, who was a murdering enemy king, Samuel said, hand me the sword, hacked into pieces, disappeared. So now this guy shows up, and he's a man of consequence. When he shows up, things get a little crazy. Things are about to happen. So there's a little bit of that feel, this this thickness in the air, which is why they came and said, hey, do you come peaceably, or do we need to get a head start running? Like, like, is everything fine? You'll tell us, right? Everything's going to be fine. Also, Saul's headspace is kind of bad right now. 
I mean, he's about to start resourcing a witch for wisdom instead of the mouthpiece of God. So his life is in danger. It's a dangerous moment. So God's solution is take a cow to the sacrifice. In a, in a town like Bethlehem, which is just a speck of a town, in a town like that, everybody comes out to see the sacrifice, including the bloodline of Jesse. So now this guy's going to get to see all of Jesse's sons. That's the setting. That's what's going on right now. Let's go back into it. Verse 6. When they came, meaning Jesse and the sons, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. And when he sent and brought him, now he was a ruddy and, a, and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for he is, or for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Okay. The key verse there that you're going to want to zoom in on, and it's not just key for our passage today. It's probably one of the key verses for the entire work of 1 and 2 Samuel is the one for the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. Eliab looked like a winner. So did Abinadab, so did Shema, enough to even convince Samuel. They look like the real deal. They looked the part. Similar to Saul, I'm sure. Strong, impressive, stately, kingly. It's funny how we look at things like that, isn't it? Isn't it funny that we assess significance by how someone looks? Assess excellence by how something just appears. But at, the, at this point, he spins around and he says, are these all the sons you've got? And you could, almost, you could almost intuit the cadence in the mood of this moment of Jesse going, well, <laughs> there is one more. That's not the guy you want here. I mean, he's, he's a son, but kind of a son, right? I mean, seven's a complete number. This is my complete set of sons. The eighth invisible son is still out in the fields. You know, David is a little bit of a male Cinderella. All of his brothers are trying to fit their foot in the glass slipper of leading a nation while he's out, what, working in the fields. It even says he's our youngest son. In that language, it renders out to be more closely or more accurately tiniest. In our language, once it's produced in English, would be runt. We have one more, he's the runt. This is his dad speaking about him, by the way just to remind you of that. You see, the Bible is going out of its way to show how insignificant David appeared, how, how obscure and ordinary he was. Man, I think this is important for us. 
If God's choice of the runt king teaches me anything, it's that significance does not always look significant. Significance doesn't always look that way. And if Samuel struggles with this, we do too. We do too. I think America, I don't say that the American church even, would prefer that we would all be Saul's instead of David's. We would all be like Eliab. I mean, when you go back into verse 9 of this book on your own time, you will see a description of Saul, the first king. And it says this, There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He was obviously better. This is the guy that runs the fastest 40 time. He's in the bench, the bench press club. He was the homecoming king, capture a room, great communicator, filled the room, the kind of guy that walked in and you knew he ran something of consequence. He was a real leader. That's what he looked like. You know, to be invisible or obscure in America today, it almost feels like a sin, doesn't it? It almost feels like it's just wrong because we must be obvious. And here's the trouble with that. No one in here feels very excellent. Nobody does. Even if you act like it, even if you've got pride all over you, you know your deepest fears are that you just don't appear very significant. You, know, you, don't, you don't appear very obviously excellent. It haunts all of us. Listen, the good news for us is it's not the Bible's goal to pump us full of self-esteem. That's not what it's trying to do. Christianity isn't designed to build narcissism or to reshape our ego. That's not what it's about. David was ordinary. He was obscure. He was not obvious. In fact, I'll say this. Every great thing about David was great because the Spirit of God rushed upon him. That's what made him powerful. That's what makes him noteworthy. It was the Spirit of God. The prophet Zechariah says it this way, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's the spirit. It's not our LinkedIn page. It's not our pedigree. It's not what we've done. It's not how we look. It's not how we carry ourselves. It's the spirit of God. Why is it that God works like this? Why does God work like this? I'll tell you, he just won't share his glory with us, but he will use ordinary people to reveal his glory. That's a theme we see a lot in the Bible. That's a constant theme. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, says this about Paul. And this is Paul speaking to a church. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You know, you're going to find Paul often. If you read enough Paul, if you spend enough time in the letters that he has written to different churches, you're going to pick up over time. He, it's just a normal guy. Not, I, know he, I know he worked his way up the corporate ladder of being a Pharisee, but had you just walked in and no one had name badges on, you wouldn't have pegged this guy to be leading anything. Just a normal guy. He kind of goes out of his way to let everybody know that. 2 Corinthians 12, God tells him, my power is made perfect in weakness. That's what he tells this guy. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Friends, I have heard enough sermons on David to fill two lifetimes that amount to little more than an inspirational halftime chat. Honestly. How to, how to charge your Goliaths. How to never judge a book by its cover. How, how powerful things are in small packages. Oh, so boring. 
Such a boring way to look at the Bible, such a boring way to look at David. What I hope you see clearly, at least this far in, is that your Bible is not trying to teach you how to be a little David in your life, slaying giants and being fantastic. It's not what it's trying to do. David is not even the central character in his own story. If he does get an Oscar, it's for supporting cast. That we need to see. That we've got to have stapled in to our theological understanding before you even lean into a passage like this. He's he's supporting cast. And this is why. Because 1,000 years later, 14 generations, this is amazing, 1,000 years later, there would be another obscure ordinary yet extraordinary man to come on the scene. Listen, it's no coincidence. (laughs) It's no coincidence at all that Samuel goes to obscure Bethlehem seeking a king to bring peace to the world. Because a thousand years later, three wise men would also go to the same obscure Bethlehem securing a king to bring peace to the world. Same storyline. It's no coincidence that David and Jesus were both anointed as God's chosen. That's what the word Messiah means. It just means anointed. David is anointed to be the savior, to be the chosen one of Israel, Jesus of the world. David was anointed with Samuel's oil. Jesus was anointed with the waters of baptism, both before the spirit of God rushed upon them for God's work. It's no coincidence. Not a coincidence that both men operated in obscurity, doing ordinary things until their more public lives carried them to great suffering. It's no coincidence. It's no coincidence that both men were overlooked by their peers and family. Jesus would be more than just the son forgotten in the field. He'd be the son forsaken on the cross. Significance does not always look significant. In fact, significance is often overlooked. And I mean totally overlooked. This is what it says in Isaiah 53. This is about Jesus. Some, some call this passage the fifth gospel. This is 700 years before Jesus. And Isaiah says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Right, av- right, right under our nose, under everyone's nose, Jesus has no majesty, nothing special, not esteemed, not anybody. Just an ordinary carpenter from an ordinary family in an ordinary town that nobody went to. And yet, he is the extraordinary king that slays death, reverses sin, vanquishes the grave, and all of this is according to plan. It's one of the things I love best about the Bible is the narrative. The narr- just the overarching plan of God and how everything moves according to plan. This is what it says in Jeremiah 33. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. What this means is that there's always gonna be somebody in the bloodline of David to sit on the throne. Now, ultimately, that will be Christ, who still sits on the throne of the bloodline of David. This was talking about Jesus the whole time. And there's another fascinating passage in Isaiah 11. Stay where you're at. I'm going to read this to you. 11, 1 through 5 out of Isaiah. It says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who we just got done reading about, right? And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, 
the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ear hears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist in faithfulness, the belt of his loins. And this is Jesus. And in his beginnings, just like David's, he would be insignificantly obscure and ordinary. But he gets the Oscar because he is the centerpiece of history. But what do we do with this? I mean, it's interesting enough just to look at a passage like this and say, okay, I see David and I see Jesus and I see how their, how, how their storylines are kind of echoing and moving, moving congruently with each other, but, but how does this affect you on Tuesday or Thursday? How does this change our life? How do we handle obscurity? That's a big question. How do we embrace it, something like obscurity? You know, bizarre, this is bizarre, interesting, but bizarre. Right after this moment, David with the oil, the brothers watching on, the dad a little bit shocked. Everything went right back to normal. Have you ever wondered that? If you've been a student of this, if you ever, everything went right back to normal. I actually have a print of a famous painting of this moment in my office. It hangs in my office. It's got, it's got Samuel anointing David. He's young. It's got all the brothers and the dad watching. And it's powerful to me for many different reasons. It represents a lot of things. But one thing is that this mountaintop moment is trailed with a lot of monotonous, ordinary moments. It goes right back to boring. Samuel goes home. David goes right back to the sheep. The brothers go right back to work. Imagine that for years. For a few years this happens. Anointed David would be found with the sheep. Super boring life. Friends, that's why you don't have a rundown with how he handled day to day to day after this moment. It's because it's boring and nobody wants to write or read about that. But it was like this for years. And this this life we all know too well, don't we? Ordinary, rhythmic, boring, obscure, seemingly insignificant. Ordinary people chasing just the outward appearance of a life of significance, wanting so bad to look like Saul or Eliab, obviously impressive, yet trapped in the ordinary. This we understand. Here's my confession to you. My default setting my carnal setting is to just hate feeling ordinary. Hate feeling obscure. Oh, I hate it. Now, I could dress it up spiritually. If I just think I just want my life to mean something, everyone in this room wants their life to mean something, right? In my mind, I just don't think that having a life of meaning can be found in the ordinary. That's where I go wrong, right? I'm unable to put those two together. What I do is I take outward excellence and significance and real meaning and purpose, and I conflate the two when they're not the same. Not even close to the same. Here's what I know. It's not in the palace, but it's in the pasture that God built David into a king. That I know. We could take that to the bank. And it's in ordinary, invisible, boring, predictable, rhythmic moments that God does significant things in us, shaping our heart, shaping our character, making us into the people that we need to be. Because most of us work in obscurity, live in obscurity, wondering if our lives carry any significance at all. You know it's right. Moms, I mean, honestly. And I find this hitting first-time moms like a brick wall. When, especially if they went to school, had a career, and then they had a baby. Maybe they don't go back to work. 
Maybe they do, but I find that the moms that stay home with their kids, they struggle with this more than anyone, I feel like. Just this feeling of, I did go to school for this. I'm a pretty smart person. I had influence. I had responsibility. I had contribution. And now I pick up toys. I take care of the house. I'm cleaning spit up off my favorite shirt. The whole world's passing me by. Is this what it's going to be? It strikes them hard. And it's not just moms. It could be any of us, right? I mean, how many of you have jobs where it just feels like Groundhog Day? This is my life. Same as yesterday and the year before that. And I'm pretty sure this is the way it's going to be until I die. Groundhog Day. It's difficult. Hey, and guess what's helpful? Social media, right? Social media is so helpful in moments like that. It's made for Eliab's. Everyone on there is like Eliab or Saul, aren't they? Living their perfect, fantastic selves. We're convinced that everyone is fantastic and significant except for us. Everybody is visibly liked except for us. Everybody is extraordinary, and we are very, very, very ordinary, right? But here's where you don't want to fall in a trap. The trap is this. The moral of the story is not to just hang on until it's your chance to shine. That's not what this is preaching. Just hang on. Just hang on until it's your chance to sit on the throne. It's so tempting to hear that in a passage like this. It is tempting to preach that in a passage like this. The point is that there is a throne Someone's already sitting on it. It's Christ. Our only victory is sharing his victory with him, not anticipating our own. Our only victory, our finest victory, is sharing Jesus' victory with him, not waiting on one for ourselves. Friend, if you know Jesus, you'll never have an ordinary life. If you love Jesus and you enjoy Jesus, you'll never be insignificant. Enjoying Jesus brings a freedom. I've noticed this over the years, and the more I embrace this and see it and sense it and taste it, I feel feel lighter. Enjoying Jesus brings this freedom from the fear of obscurity, where it's okay to come in last. It's okay to not look impressive. It's okay to fail. It's okay to be lost in the background. It's okay. It's okay to be forgotten in the fields. This is what I do know about the history of the church. Far too many nameless, forgotten people have lived significant lives of deep meaning, and you'll never know their names. In fact, history has forgotten their names. Many of them don't even have two markers. I mean, when I say erased, they're gone. The world rejected them as runts and tiny, but the world doesn't see as God sees. That's what we're carrying away from this. So church, listen, as we, as we finish up, you're going to have to decide you're going to have to decide how much you need and require the world's approval. How much do you need to look excellent and significant in the eyes of of all? How much are you going to require the world see you as Eliab? You're going to need to decide that. You're going to need to decide how you see significance, how you see excellence, how you see extraordinary If you cannot conceive of living this joy-filled life in the ordinary, that requires repentance, believe it or not. That's not just something you walk out of here and you change. That's something you have to repent before the Lord. Because what we're really saying is God sharing your victory with you, that is far from enough for me. I need more. I need people in this world to approve me, to celebrate me, to like me, to heart me. I need this world to applaud me. That requires repentance. 
Anytime we say that the Lord is not good enough, he's insufficient, that's a sin on our part, all the way back to the garden. I think another area of repentance is also appraising other people this way. It could be easy, right? Scan the room looking for significant people, avoiding lepers, avoiding shepherd boys while looking for the impressive kingly people. You know, one of the things you'll find, a mantra that you'll hear in the marketplace quite a bit, is if you want to be a winner, you need to surround yourself with winners. If you want to be a winner, your closest court needs to be nothing but winners. I mean, listen, that's worked its way all the way into the church. Jesus didn't think so, however. I mean, look at his cast. Did they look like a bunch of winners? No. They looked like a bunch of chimpanzees, half of them. I mean, they didn't have impressive jobs. They didn't know left from right. Their theology was weird all the way to the end. Their theology was weird. He did not surround himself with winners. And who did he approach? Prostitutes, lepers, tax collectors. What is a leper going to offer him? What? I see this happening in the church all the time. The people that are most invisible in the church... They, they might not look like Saul or Eliab, right? I see this happen in the ministry. Choosing people, selecting people. That person is called to lead. Well, how do you know? Because look at them. Look at them. Look how they talk. Look how they lead. Look how they carry themselves. Called to lead. Jesus didn't think so. Jesus didn't think so. So we've got some decisions to make. We have to decide how we're going to handle something like this. And listen, if you're here and you find yourself far from Christ... You're also going to have to decide a couple things today. You're going to have to decide if it's a coincidence that you're even here. Have you ever thought about that? I think about that. I pray for you every Sunday morning. Just as God selected David for his purposes before David was anything even special, God selected you to be here in this moment right now. What do you do with that? I mean, if God is sovereign, and when I mean sovereign, I mean he has total command and control over every atom, every second, every person, every movement, every motion. He has total control. He is sovereign God. And yet man and moment have met. What do you do with that? That's going to be up to you. But I will tell you this. If you know Jesus, your life will never be ordinary or insignificant again. Oh, even if nobody sees you, 